This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. CMS Colloquium. I'm Nick Monfort. Tonight's colloquium, as I think everyone knows by now, Sorry. is on robots. Um, and um, I'm going to, um, well, first of all, I mentioned that uh, the format will have uh, Ian Condry speak first, Cynthia Brazil will then speak, and then we'll have uh, questions and answers afterwards. And um, there's also uh, a reception after that, which will take place in 14E310, building 14... No, 304. Uh, 14E304, um, which is uh, right down the corridor into building 14. Um, so since we have uh, these two wonderful and fascinating speakers with us here to talk about um, a object of great technical and media fascination for, uh, for all of us. I want to introduce them and let them get on with their talks. Uh, you know Ian Condry as Associate Director of CMS, but he transforms into Associate Professor of Japanese Cultural Studies in uh, Foreign Languages and Literatures. His first book, Hip Hop Japan, Rap and the Paths of Cultural Globalization, was published by Duke University Press in 2006. Next up is his book, Anime Revolution, the Making of Japan's Media Success Story. Since 2006, he's been organizing the MIT Harvard Cool Japan Research Project, which involves robots. Cynthia Brazil, uh, who's joining us from the Media Lab to speak today, is an associate professor of media arts and sciences. She founded and directs the Personal Robots Group there at the Media Lab. At MIT's AI Lab, uh, she developed Kismet, an expressive robot head that has been widely featured in international media, is on display at the MIT Museum, and is a subject of her 2002 book, Designing Sociable Robots. Uh, Nexi, a mobile social robot developed by Brazil's Personal Robots Group, was named one of the 50 best innovations of 2008 by Time Magazine. Brazil is co-director of the Media Lab's Center for Future Storytelling, which, as you might imagine, also involves robots. <laughs> And with that, I'll hand it over to Ian Condry. Thank you very much. Um, thank you, Nick, and thank you all uh, for coming today. Uh, we're going to try to keep uh, our, each of our presentations about 25 minutes so we have enough time uh, to have questions and an ongoing discussion afterwards. Thank you all for coming, and my apologies for the room confusion. Uh, I'm glad you found it here. Um, what I'm going to talk about today is... Uh, uh, Mecca and the Soul of Anime. Um, I'm actually thinking of changing the title of my book to The Soul of Anime, colon, uh, Collaborative Creativity uh, and Japan's Media Success Story. Um, and I, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, first, anime and this project uh, as a whole. I'm a cultural anthropologist by training. Uh, my interest is in media and globalization. Um, and I'm especially interested in these media forms uh, that go global despite being relatively uh, seen, seen as relatively unimportant by major corporations and elites. 
uh, and I think that's one of the things that both hip-hop and anime have in common, uh, that they grew up a little bit more. They, they went global, more from at least initially independent and grassroots efforts before being uh, in, integrated into larger corporate um, uh, channels. Uh, and to me, that's kind of interesting uh, question is how that happens, why that happens, uh, and what it might mean for understanding the spread of culture uh, more generally. Um, it seems there's a lot of good ideas uh, that aren't supported by governments, aren't supported by major corporations, and yet if there are ways that those can go global nevertheless, take root, uh, become integrated into local ways of life, then there may be something to learn um, from forms of popular culture. Okay? As a cultural anthropologist, one of the things I'm interested in is ethnography. Right, doing field work, um, especially in sites of cultural production. Uh, that's what I've been doing uh, for my career. Uh, and, and I'm curious about what ethnography uh, can tell us about media. And so I want to suggest uh, a couple of those things today. First about anime generally, and then saying a couple words about uh, robot anime in particular. The soul. Why, why do I use this term? the soul. Um, well, part of it is that ethnography uh, aims to start from a position to say that if we want to learn about a group of people, we want to uh, be in their space, participate in their community, where they live, in their day-to-day -day activities, and to start with a question of what is most meaningful to them. Uh, rather than me deciding what I want to ask anime fans, I want to see what anime fans are doing uh, with things that they care about. Um, and ethnography at some level starts with this question, well, what is most meaningful um, and how is it used? Here we have a giant robot uh, who showed up uh, to one of my lectures one time in this outfit. Uh, <laughs> and the, the collaboration began after that. Um, there's another, so, so that which is most meaningful, ethnography, what most matters, not only the representations of media, but questions of production, participation, and emergence. Okay, and so the idea of the soul of anime is meant not so much as a rigorous analytical category, like now if we just find the soul of everything, we'll get to the answer. That's not my point. Rather, I just think that we can ask different kinds of questions uh, by thinking about meaning in a somewhat different way. I'm also interested in this question of soul uh, in terms of labor. Uh, some of my key, uh, this is one of my key uh, points of interest is the work uh, of making music, making animation, uh, thinking about media as uh, uh, work in some ways uh, and what that involves, but including not only the work of animators like uh, this key frame animator at Toei Animation, um, but also the labor of fans uh, and the ways that they participate in the spread of uh, anime. For example, through fan subs where fans are adding subtitles and distributing online excuse me, the latest anime broadcast from Japan uh, with a stipulation that this uh, transmission and circulation should be non-commercial, that the fan subbers do not accept money uh, for their work, uh, and they also ask fans to stop distributing titles uh, once they have been licensed in whatever market they are in. Okay, so the soul also has to do with labor and people putting their soul uh, into the work, uh, both on the part of creators and fans. Um, and then there's another aspect of soul as well uh, that I'm interested in uh, that has to do with thinking about what moves across planes of existence, right? There's a lot of talk about transmedia. Transmedia storytelling is something very interesting. Um, but what I found in looking at animation uh, being made in Japan, uh, and it relates more broadly to other forms of media as well, 
is that what moves across media, from comic books to animation to video games to light novels uh, and beyond, uh, cosplay, fanzines as well, is maybe not so much the story, as in transmedia storytelling, as it is the characters uh, and the premises that link them. Here's the uh, image uh, related to the film that was shown on Monday here at MIT uh, that has all of these characters. Uh, and there's a sort of centrality to characters more than stories in some ways uh, that, I think, uh, that I've learned from animation but I think can apply more broadly. Uh, and in some ways it's these characters, the premises that link them and the worlds that they move in that moves across media uh, more than, and that the stories themselves can be spun off in a number of different directions. Uh, so if there's a soul to animation, uh, it might be these characters uh, as a way to think about that. Okay? So basically my catchphrase uh, is that the soul of anime is a collaborative project. Okay? And the idea being uh, that if you peel away animation, you're left with a blank page. Uh, there's nothing actually behind it. Uh, there's nothing, the camera was not taking a picture of anything that was there. It was all added in by people contributing to it uh, from the creators on through the fans. Uh, and so the anime becomes a, an example for us to think about what collaborative creativity might mean in different uh, media formats, and I'm focusing on animation. Here's a, uh, a life-size, actual-size Gundam uh, recently built uh, in Japan. It's about six stories tall. Uh, but, of course, there never was any real Gundam <laughs> to begin with. So it's an interesting concept uh, at all. All right. Uh, there's there's some, one bit of theory uh, that I would make a nod to from anthropology, uh, that there's been, I think, a shift or there's an ongoing shift within anthropology um, away from a concern with power uh, and the ways that culture and power are understood uh, to thinking about value. Uh, and the ways we attach value to things, to objects, uh, to practices. Uh, and that as anthropologists are struggling with understanding culture is not something located in a particular territorial space, right? I'm not interested in Japanese culture as only being that which happens inside the national boundaries of Japan. Uh, Hip-hop goes from the U.S. to Japan. Anime goes from Japan to the world. Uh, culture is flowing around. We need a different way of thinking about culture that's not tied necessarily to a specific ethnic group, not so tied to a specific territory. Uh, and one of the ways people, one of the ways people are, are thinking about this is redefining what a social system is, right? Structure of creative action, value as the way people measure uh, the importance of their own actions, okay? And this, too, again, gets at that idea that the way to understand value uh, is not by measuring up how much sales there are uh, of, uh, of animation. Here's the, a common measure of value of the anime market in Japan, running at about $2 billion a year uh, in recent years. Uh, based on box office sales, uh, DVD sales, and television advertising. This is one understanding of value. Uh, but think of other kinds of value as well, the kinds of values of fan suburbs, uh, for example, uh, and the ways uh, that they uh, understand the importance of their work, not in monetary terms, but in other terms. Okay? And so that is a kind of different way of thinking about value. I, we might think of it as a cultural or an ethnographic approach uh, to value. One of the things I would say, I would add in terms of the, this question of the market, um, is that anime as a transmedia phenomenon 
is also interesting because although the market for animation itself in Japan is about $2 billion, uh, the market for licensed merchandise around the characters is 10 times this amount. It's actually a $20 billion market. Um, and so this question of what anime makes is maybe not so much animation itself, but ideally it makes characters uh, that then can be built upon uh, by many people, um, and that's certainly true here as well. All right. Now, there are other ways. The other thing I would say about uh, one of the other aspects of animation is that it is um, a global phenomenon. Uh, people estimate that uh, 60% of cartoons broadcast worldwide on television are Japanese in origin. Uh, and when I met with people at uh, Cartoon Network in Burbank, California, uh, they said, yeah, that sounds about right, uh, that they thought that was probably true, that it was the Japanese who dominate the global market, uh, uh, in, uh, at least in terms of volume of, uh, of TV cartoons. And the Japanese government, as well, is trying to capitalize on this. They heard this idea of soft power, uh, and they'd like to use it. I actually I don't think it's going to be very effective, uh, but it is interesting where it pops up when the Japanese government gave water tank trucks to uh, Iraq. Uh, they put a logo on it here with the, uh, the Japanese flag and the Iraqi flag and water, so uh, people don't try to steal the trucks for its oil uh, and gasoline. Uh, but some people in the Iraqi government said, you know, a lot of people in Iraq don't know what the Japanese flag looks like. Uh, so they put on a manga character from a soccer manga, uh, Captain Tsubasa, as he's known in Japan, a soccer manga. He's a very popular character in Iraq as well, where he's known as Captain Majid. Uh, and so it becomes a kind of representation uh, for the nation, uh, and it's sort of one of the, the ways in which um, they're, uh, they're trying to capitalize on global animation. For me, however, I'm sort of more interested uh, in other kinds of value, other ways of thinking about value. And I want to show a brief uh, animation clip from one of my favorite TV shows called uh, So Long, Mr. Despair. Uh, and it's a story of uh, a, a teacher whose actual name is uh, Nozomo Itoshiki. For those of you who uh, speak Japanese, uh, you can see there's a pun involved here that if you write his name slightly differently, uh, it reads as despair. Uh, and so it's a, it's a kind of joke uh, of language. In fact, all of the characters in the show have a kind of joking language. Uh, and this teacher himself does despair. He's so frustrated with the disaster that Japanese society has become, um, and every episode has some uh, lament about the problems of Japan. Um, and so this episode is no different. Um, there's some seats around. Come on in. Um, and uh, this is the day, the, the premise here, this is the day in which the junior high school, the high school students are uh, uh, getting measured. Uh, their bust, their weight, their height uh, 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 is being uh, measured. It's a, a day of much anxiety uh, in the classroom. And, um, uh, uh, and they're wondering about their own value. Uh, and the teacher says, you know, this isn't, this isn't the way to measure value. This, you should not care about these outward appearances. There's other things going on. Uh, and he proposes a different way of understanding value. So let's take a look at this two-minute clip. ブログ
大切なのは中身がどうかということでしょうそんなわけで今日は身の丈測定を実施します身の丈測定それって何つまり人間の器の大きさを測るのです皆さんには自らの身の丈を知り身の丈に合った人生を送ってほしいと思います世の中身の丈に合っていないことをしている人が多いんです教科書が部屋に60インチのプラズマテレビを置いたりニートのくせにニートの意見したり残高が5000円しかないのに生体認証キャッシュカードにしたり薄毛なのに露見したりデブなのに手すばしルックしたりとにかく自分の器を分かっていない人が多いのです己を知らされば戦うことに必ず危うし万損しそんなわけで皆さんの二度だけを測ります用意した部屋に一人ずつ入ってきてください失礼しますどうぞおかけくださいあはいわかりましたそれくらいなら貸します50円え君の人間の器は50円ですえぇー50円ってどんな器の人間ですかそうですね具体的に言うと50円の人間は貸したシャーペンについている消しゴムを使ってからマジで降りる駅を過ぎても160円区間ギリギリまでチャンスで自分の携帯を使わず他人の携帯を借りて当たりに使うそんな人あなたはなりたくなりたくありませんしそんなことしませんとにかく50円の君には身の丈に合った生活をしていただきます So that's what you get,、uh, is the idea. And so, right here is a, a very different notion of value, right? It's something we all recognize, in fact, you know, that we value people in, not in terms of how much we would pay for that person. We value people in terms of what they're willing to give to others, right? And in some ways, I mean, I think this is very commonsensical. We act and, and move through the world with this understanding. Uh, and yet, when there's a lot of talk about the value of media, so often it comes down to the value in terms of what its sales are. And then, too, when it comes to piracy and fan subbing, it's seen as a, a taking away of that value rather as part of the process of what adds value、uh, to that work. Okay, and so I use this as a way of thinking about alternative、um, ideas of value、um, and the way they work. Um, okay,、uh, I, I want to just show a few images here、uh, of the work in、uh, the studios so we get a little bit of a sense. There's this interesting aspect of going to animation studios. They have these shiny entranceway areas, these glossy rooms where, for example, this script meeting was held、uh, every week.、Uh, this is where the meetings happen uh, and uh, some of the work goes on. But when the animators are actually getting down to work, this is the kind of space they work in. 
piles of paper. Here's the director going back to his, uh, his table to write up the storyboards. Um, here is the animation director checking the keyframe drawings that are being done by pencil with her eraser right there. Uh, here's the character designer uh, woman's desk. Uh, her work is done. She's already designed the characters. And this is the six-person space uh, where most of the, uh, the key work was done uh, for this TV series called Red Garden, which I saw being made uh, in the summer. Okay? And a lot of other studios were like this as well. Here's the painter's uh, desk for doing the backgrounds. Um, and what uh, it really comes through in going to these animation studios is how much work is involved uh, to draw each frame uh, of this work and making, uh, making it come about. Um, and, and in some ways, this, now this gets us to this question of sort of why robot anime is so prevalent in Japan and some of the directions that Japanese animation has taken over time. Um, and although the first, some of the first uh, uh, animation made after the war was in the late 50s, making feature films that tried to mimic the full animation of Walt Disney films like Snow White, like Bambi, that were very influential in Japan, uh, that when the first TV series, uh, regular TV series, was being made, uh, Mighty, uh, Mighty Adam, or Astro Boy, as it's known in English, uh, introduced a very different uh, model. Uh, for making especially television animation, um, in which it hinged on characters that were already well-loved, uh, mostly through comic books. And about 60% of Japanese animation is made from comic book characters. Uh, and this is that case where what was transmedia were these characters, uh, the premise that linked them, um, and the world that they moved in, um, and that the story often came later or was spun off in many directions. Now, Tezuka had a real eye for these emotionally gripping stories. Astro Boy begins with a young child being killed in a car accident, his father uh, crying over the dead child's body, uh, uh, sobbing uh, in his office, then realizing he can build a robot uh, to replace his boy. But even after he builds the robot, he realizes it's just a doll, it's a toy, and he pushes the robot out to be an orphan on the street. Um, and this is how the story begins. And this is the premise of the robot boy trying to survive on his own. Um, but when they made the film, uh, not only it had this emotional attachment, so that when the actual animation was made, uh, it, was very, uh, it was very limited. Uh, there was hardly any movement, uh, mostly standing around, uh, different drawings for just the mouth movements, uh, and very rarely would they even go up to three frames per second. Uh, and so they radically reduced uh, the number of frames uh, that were used to make this animation look, just standing around uh, and very little actually happening. They only used 2,000 frames for each of these episodes, um, and that was the look of it. When Japanese animators who had been working on film saw this, they said, this is a disaster. This is terrible. This isn't animation. This is like illustration and, and zooming in and out of, on a, a single page. And yet it was a huge success, getting audience ratings of about 30%. Uh, and so the animation studios uh, and television companies realized that they could make crappy animation uh, as long as it was based on a very popular character. Um, and so this was one of the transmedia aspects uh, of anime that has, carries its influence to today. Another extension was finding that they could 
sell toys related to the characters. I often thought MTV invented the nonstop commercial, but in fact, uh, Robot Anime uh, was an early example of this, where there were rules uh, for um, designing the, uh, uh, the animation uh, such that it emphasized uh, uh, the different products. Often these, these, uh, these anime robot characters were designed by the uh, toy companies themselves uh, and then worked into uh, TV shows. Uh, and there was a real breakthrough with this particular metal uh, character. Let's see if we get a sound here. There was sound. We lost it. Uh, uh, which sold for more money. They're a little bit heavier, a little higher quality. It became a huge hit uh, and sparked an array of robot anime to follow. Uh, funded by toy companies, uh, it really became a chance for young directors to explore new kinds of, uh, of storytelling, new kinds of uh, plot developments, uh, especially in representations of war and battling. Uh, and there was a particular director by the name of Tomino, who got famous with, uh, among others, this one, Zambot 3. Uh, he became a director very famous for making anime that would sell robot toys. Uh, and then he eventually made Gundam. Here we have the Gundam, one of these Gundam characters, which itself uh, has an interesting story. Uh, it comes up uh, as the Astro Boy generation is getting in their teens, uh, uh, looking for some more serious stories. Uh, and Tomino felt that the idea uh, that robots would not injure humans, uh, that there was a kind of safety to them, uh, made no sense. Uh, I think he might be right. Uh, the direction uh, that some uh, of our technological uh, advance has gone uh, supports Tomino, not Tezuka's view. Um, and so that we have these kinds, this new kind of anime uh, uh, that explores war um, in, a, in a, what was called at the time a more real uh, kind of approach. Uh, and one of the producers I was able to interview said, you know, we aimed uh, to rid uh, super robot anime of its lies. Uh, that here in Gundam, uh, the hero is frightened and he doubts himself. Uh, destroyed towns stay destroyed. Uh, there are dead civilians, refugees, children caught up in the wages of battle, battle-scarred wastelands, uh, and even the mother of the hero despises uh, her son uh, for being a violent warrior. Now, the final point about Gunn that's kind of interesting is that it was too complicated. It was too dark. Uh, it didn't sell robot toys. And, in fact, it was canceled uh, by the toy company that had sponsored it initially uh, before its scheduled one-year run. Um, Clover uh, was the toy company that originally uh, uh, funded the show, uh, but then something interesting happened. A small toy company at the time, called Bandai, uh, realized that m plastic models, uh, especially of uh, the space battleship Yamato, uh, Star Blazers, uh, was, uh, was selling plastic models that, were, that only teens and high schoolers could build. They were kind of complicated. And so they bought the rights only to that one little segment of the Gundam franchise, uh, and it took off, and it became part of this growing fan community around especially mecha or robot uh, anime. Um, uh, I should say mecha, whether they're metal suits or robots, is, is, is worth debate. There are, there are some distinctions there. Most of these uh, were rideable, uh, not so much uh, autonomous robots like Astro Boy. Uh, but in any case, uh, these plastic models helped reignite an interest in Gundam, uh, and Gundam goes on to be a 30-year, one of the most powerful franchises uh, in all of Japan. 
so it's a lesson that is already known, I think, by this audience. Fan participation uh, is important and valuable. We need to understand it. Uh, but it was something uh, that was still being, under, still being experienced uh, firsthand at this time. But it helps explain why there's so much mecha anime, that there is this flow uh, from the toy companies, from the manga stories, uh, through the animators, and then back out into um, toy games, cosplay, uh, and so on, where these characters uh, move, right? They move from the manga to the anime, to the toys, onto people's bodies, into fanzines, uh, in ways that highlight that if we want to understand uh, the power and value uh, of contemporary media, we need this sense of the circulation. We need this sense of how media becomes integrated uh, into people's lives, uh, into their day-to-day activities, into their peer groups, uh, in ways where the value might not be easily captured uh, by the graph of what sells, uh, but more importantly, has to be grasped uh, through that experience of everyday life. And for me, that's one of the great things that we can learn about the soul of anime. Thank you very much. All right, let's see if this will come up here. Which one are we on? It's P2. Takes a second though, I think. Let's see, PC2, computer 2. Try, yeah, try to detect display. There we go. We got some action. Yeah. Okay, here we go. I was hoping if I stood over here. Yeah, you're right. Your magical essence did it. Please join me in welcoming Cynthia Brazil. Thank you. Oh, yeah, you need this. <laughs> here we go, here we go. Robots and anime with not to love, you know? <laughs> so uh, I, I took a, a peek at Ian's slides uh, in an effort to try to prepare uh, my comments, and I thought, man, Mecca and the soul of anime, that's a great title. It's like, what? how can I compete with that? What can I possibly talk about to compete with that? So I'm thinking, robot, robot soul, I don't know, what can I do with this? So uh, I was inspired. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to keep this light. Um, but to give you a little bit of sense of, uh, I think, certainly how anime and science fiction has influenced science today, and especially robot science in particular, um, how that's starting to shape up when you look at robotics research in the world today and what our real futures may hold because of characters like Astro Boy and anime and, and all these other things. So, you know, if you go to robotics and artificial intelligence conferences and you ask people, why do you do this for a living? Why, why do you do this? And Almost universally, people say, because when I was a little boy, a little girl at some age, I saw some science fiction thing, and that has inspired me. It captured my imagination. And, you know, when you look at uh, Adam Boy here, Astro Boy, if you talk to the most senior, well-established Japanese professors who do robotics, they will tell you point blank, the reason why we build humanoid robots is because we want to build Mighty Adam or Adam Boy. That is their dream. Uh, in many ways, they see building that kind of robot as being their Apollo program. If they could do that, then they see themselves to be recognized as kind of the marquee engineers of the world. And I, I've gone to expos in Japan where, again, these prominent professors will, will stand up and say, basically, you know, Europe owns the car. You want the most luxury, fancy cars. You go to Europe. The United States owns the Internet. Japan will own the robot. 
So uh, there's prolific research going on in Japan. They have, I'm always struck when I talk to the media in Japan about my work versus when I talk to media in the United States, because in Japan I get asked questions like, what will the future be like when people actually love their robots so much that they stop wanting to interact with people? Because, of course, robots are going to be saintly and generous and kind. You know, and I come here and it's like, they're going to be Terminators, they're going to kill it, you know. And I'm like, wow, this is like really fascinating from a cultural perspective. But science fiction, anime, I mean, it does influence, it does influence uh, us as researchers in these fields. And when you think about a lot of these, these movies and so forth, a lot of it is about these robots trying to Find emotion, be more human-like, have a heart. And uh, when you talk about, uh, you know, I've been reading these Japanese research papers where they talk about the humanoid robot is physics plus logic plus what they call kansei. I don't know if you're saying that right. But it essentially maps to body, mind, and heart. And so they fundamentally see that as part of the equation of what makes a robot is this softer, (laughs) interpersonal, subjective sense. And certainly when I was 10 and I saw Star Wars for the first time, I fell in love with R2-D2 and C-3PO. I mean, it's all I talked about for an entire year. Um, and it was because these were characters with rich personalities. They cared about people. And, and if you look at my work today, that, that really is kind of the vision that, that, that I pursue. So, um... A little bit more? Yeah, more. Okay. Can you hear me? All right, so this is the robot, uh, Kismet, that Nick mentioned. This is actually the robot in the United States that kind of broke open this whole question of, uh, at the time it was actually interesting because, um, so my advisor was Rod Brooks. He went on sabbatical in 1993 and toured the entire world, and he came back from Japan and saying, we're doing humanoids. And I'm like, we're doing insects now. I thought we were going to do dogs next, or what are you, and then he's like, no, humanoids. And it's because in Japan they were already doing uh, a lot of this work because one of the issues was global aging society. And they were very concerned about, you know, when you have this changing demographic, can robotics actually help help us as a country address, address the need of being able to be productive longer, having assistance in living independently longer, and so forth. But when they're talking about humanoids back then, a lot of it was about so much of our environment is engineered for this human morphology, all these artifacts and so forth. So the human body made sense. They weren't really thinking about it in terms of the social implications. And a lot of the, the thought that I had been having about you know, developing intelligence in some sense was appreciating. I was reading a lot of developmental psychology appreciating the profound role of the social um, and even making our cognitive abilities develop normally. And so I became intrigued in the humanoid form because of a robot's ability to interact with people as opposed to human artifacts. And this robot kismet was really the first exploration in that where it was all about the face-to-face. All kismet really was was this expressive head. There was no body. The funny thing is, is when people interacted with the kismet, they, they didn't perceive that as being a head. They saw it as a complete robot in some sense. And what they were compelled by was in some sense the kind of connection that you could actually feel with the machine. Obviously it's a machine. It's gears, it's wires. You can see all these things, but it had these big blue eyes. And it had a kind of very kind of young creature-like behavior because in many ways babies or infants was my muse. In many ways Kismet was like a robot baby that through social interaction with people would get these experiences to be able to learn how to become socially intelligent, emotionally intelligent inspired by our own social and emotional development in people. So humans are, of course, we're profoundly social. In robotics, I think, there's new communities called human-robot interaction and social robotics that are really starting to appreciate that, you know, if, if you really want to think about 
robots as a ubiquitous technologies, robots that anyone could really use, the Star Wars visions of robots walking among us, you know, in society and so forth, they really have to be able to, to, to work within human social systems, and humans are incredibly complex. I mean, when you think about robots today, they've been to Mars, they've been to the ocean, they've been in volcanoes. There's very few in your living room, you know, and there's a reason for that. It turns out that the human environment is so much more complex, and for me, so much more interesting than a lot of these other kinds of more static, kind of more physics-based uh, environments. So trying to build robots that can not only be competent in how they interact with things that are governed by the laws of physics, but with people who have minds, whose behaviors uh, are governed by states of minds, you now have to start thinking about, if I'm going to say what the soul of the robot is and the, the way that research is spinning out today, really thinking about what does it mean to build a robot that can understand people not only in terms of our observable actions, but the internal states that also observe those actions that are designed in a way that we can understand their behavior in those terms. Because in many ways, what we're finding is that people really want to interpret robots as social entities themselves. And to make that system work, you have to address both sides of that equation. So this is just a simple slide to show people anthropomorphize out the wazoo. I mean, again, we are so profoundly social. It takes very little to push our social buttons to get us to try to understand behavior in these terms. So uh, I don't know if I have this video hooked up. But this is a very classic uh, psychological test that people have of just moving shapes on the screen. But if you ask people to describe how these shapes move, they don't say, Oh, spatial relations and geometry, they say, oh, well, the big one is chasing the little one, and they go inside the house, and they're trying to escape. They ascribe all of these mental states, and it's just because of how these shapes are moving in relation to one another. People name their Roombas. They're creating these tea cozies for these Roombas. Again, this is all about, you know, we are so profoundly social that things that move in a way that evoke that way of thinking, it just, the floodgates open. So the question here for us is, how can we design robots that really work with this? Because it's pretty clear in our experience with people, this is what people do, whether you like it or not. Even if you tell them it's just a machine, it doesn't matter. So, you know, if you look through the media and you grab little clips of, of, of anecdotes about people coming into contact with robots or now with commercial systems like the Roomba, people are starting to do like year-long ethnographic studies of the Roomba in the home to try to understand what that system looks like, and they're finding that there are really profound kind of social, emotional things going on with people in their Roombas, where there's an anecdote here drawn from a paper, a year-long study done at Georgia Tech, uh, interviewing a bunch of people with the Roombas in their homes, saying, you know, there was a point with this one family where the Roomba broke, and it was under warranty, and they could send it back. But they were really torn because they didn't want just any Roomba back. They wanted their Roomba back, you know. Or, you know, examples of, you know, their, you know, better experience to work with a robot or findings suggest that by developing intimacy with the robot, uh, our participants were able to arrive increased pleasure from cleaning. So my Roomba is Rambo, intimate home appliances. So, again, I mean, just appreciating this is what we are. This, this is what people are, you know. There was another uh, quote that was at an article uh, from CNET in 2006 from Colin Angle, who's the CEO of iRobot talking about this packbot. And again, this is not an anthropomorphic robot at all. This is like this very mechanical looking thing. And it's completely teleoperated. It's not even autonomous in any way. And he said the soldier came back from Iraq uh, with this robot in, in his arms, crying and sobbing, saying, you have to fix my robot, Scooby-Doo. They named it Scooby-Doo, saying, this thing saved my life. I guess it apparently took like a bomb or bullet or something for, for this guy. So there's these notions of, of team loyalty storefronters. And you know, you just see her stories out again and again and again about this. So. I think it's time to stop being kind of freaked out about it or kind of, oh, that's weird, and just say, this, we're human. This is, this, is, this is who we are. This is what we are. So we, it's something that we need to, 
to appreciate and, and kind of figure out what's the best way to move forward on that. So, you know, robots for everyone, that's the vision, personal robots. And this is just one of these uh, examples of, you know, wild projections of the growth of the, the robot market into the future, saying that manufacturing, yes, certainly that will continue to go up, but personal robots or service robots, robots that are in human environments, is expected to go through dramatic growth. Um, and a lot of that, again, is, is big global demographic changes like the global aging society uh, issues, but, but a lot of other areas as well. So hope springs eternal, always a lot of optimism. Uh, but uh, certainly within the robots community, thinking about robots in the context of people has become a much, much more significant area of inquity. So social robots, robots designed to actively, and you can think of in terms of relating to people in these sort of psychological terms. So again, it's not so much just people projecting onto these robots. If you're projecting these states onto the robots and the robot doesn't behave in a way that's consistent about your projections, then the whole system's off. So in some sense, you have to be able to do what you do, so these social projections on the robot, but the robot's behavior has to adhere to that. And vice versa, you know, if you're behaving in a certain way, you have these mental states. If a robot can understand you in terms of those states, you've got a chance to coordinate joint action. So especially when we think about social behaviors being cooperative, collaborative behavior, now you need to start thinking about coordinating shared goals, understanding beliefs, knowledge, feeling states, motivations, I mean, all these things start to come into play, and this has opened up entirely new questions in the era of robotics of how do you build machines that can do this, where it's not just about what people do um, in terms of the physical actions, but the context and what they do also gives you a lot of clues to what's happening inside your head. And certainly when you read uh, uh, studies about, say, people with autism, you realize that for a lot of people, we assume it's obvious watching what a person is doing and understanding all the mental states until you talk to someone who... That isn't so obvious, and you realize what amazing capacity this is for people. So this is me with my, uh, my middle boy, who's actually he's four now. But um, just to, again, remind you that a lot of the inspiration for a lot of this work is really driven from developmental psychology and how these abilities evolve within us, because it is so sophisticated. Uh, and we do take it for granted in so many ways. But when you try to actually create systems that can do it, you realize... There's a lot going on there. Um, so can you bootstrap it? Can you grow it? Can you, how do you kind of make this a co really complex system into a way that you can kind of approach in a more kind of uh, a manageable uh, way? And of course, not to say that development is simple at all, but, but maybe if you start with a, kind of the simplest entity that interacts in a social way and can grow up, maybe that, that's a particular path. Of course, children are, are amazing uh, in, their, in their own right, of course, as well. But one of the main strategies that you can learn from something like developmental psychology. So it's appreciating uh, the relations of that being in a body with a mind in a world of like bodies with like minds yields a lot of multimodal associations between the self and the appearance of the other agents, so how you look, how you move, the behaviors and events and times of the self and the behaviors of other agents, being able to map that. And ultimately, perhaps, if those other agents are kind of like you, your ability to infer the internal workings of oneself and the other agents, and that can be learned. And that's sort of the sort of empathetic, intuitive understanding we often talk about. So that means that you can start to try to, you know, model these systems, and you read all the psychological literature and so forth, and neuroscience and animal behavior, and, you know, you try to come up with these models that are, you know, incredibly simple compared to what real systems, real animals, real people do, but trying to get at these core, core ideas. And, you know, this is basically one of the uh, beginning architectures of Kismet, basically showing that at that time there was a lot of research happening in psychology on uh, understanding the theory of emotions from a psychological as well as a neuroscience standpoint. 
and just the appreciation of even human behavior, you know, before it was sort of assumed that you had cool, rational cognition and kind of hot, irrational emotion, and starting to appreciate that these two are so tightly intertwined that you don't get intelligent behavior unless both of these systems are working well with one another. And in many ways, you can think of the cognitive sides as being kind of the, the what about the world. I see a red ball. It's moving so fast or whatever. But the emotion system is all about the so what. Is that good for me or bad for me? Should I care? So it's all about these appraisals. And when we think about our behavior, I mean, emotion is involved in every kind of decision that we make. And, of course, it's profoundly important to our social decisions. So even in the architectures of these kinds of robotic systems, trying to model and mechanize and think about these effective computing processes became a real focus of a lot of these social robot systems, as much as the cognitive kind of classical planning, reasoning sorts of systems, especially when you're trying to deal with interpersonal relations with people. So I'm going to kind of go through some examples from my own work, touching on how developmental psychology has inspired a lot of these abilities and just showing basically a lot of fun videos. You can get a sense of, of how this is unfolding over time. So I want to start by talking a little bit about um, social learning and imitation. So you read the developmental psychology literature, and of course one of the, the most profound abilities that we have starting from, you know, essentially people say like right after birth, is to learn by imitation. It might start by, by simple mimicry. Facial imitation is one of the earliest forms of imitation that is, was contentious for a long time, whether it actually even neonates engaged in facial imitation. There's increasing evidence to argue that, that there is some innate predispositions to actually do that. But imitation itself as a skill continues to develop on the time from imitating or mimicking simple actions to starting to imitate delayed actions to starting to be able to imitate... Uh, 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 deferred, I mean, uh, uh, intended actions. So if an experimenter is communicating a sort of goal-like state but keeps messing up and you give it to a child, they actually imitate the goal as opposed to the actual actions. So it continues to get more sophisticated over time as the cognitive and social abilities of the child develop. So imitation is fascinating. As you can imagine, it's a very powerful tool or skill to learn how to learn. This is the big thing. And also, once you can learn how to learn from others, their experience can become your experience. So this is, this is a, you know, a very big thing <laughs> for people. Um, it turns out very few other species actually learn from tr true imitation. Uh, we believe dolphins can do it, um, people, and uh, it's kind of debated as if, if, if any others can do it. Um, so imitation as a discovery procedure for understanding persons. So these earliest like me experiences, if I perceive you as being kind of like me and I can map myself onto you, I can start to maybe try and infer what you, why you might be doing something if I imagine what I might be doing in that same situation. Early facial imitation has seemed to be some of the earliest examples of this. So it turns out that um, in, uh, in children, of course, when you talk about uh, imitation, a lot of that happens because it's actually the parents who also are prolific imitators of their infants. So it's not that the infant is always reaching out and imitating the parent. It's that, you know, you watch your child and it's like, whatever they do, you mirror it. And you see this even in people who speak different languages. There's a lot of trying to connect through kind of mirrors each other's actions back and forth uh, to one another. So part of what makes the system work is that not only does the child have these innate kind of rough, crude mappings between facial regions and body organs in terms of eyes, it might map to eye regions, but I don't know exactly how in a detailed sense, but the fact that the parents are also imitating actions back back to the child. So let me try to play this video. It just occurred to me that when I copied this over, I might need to pull it up from another source. Uh, I 
thought I had this linked in, but I don't. Uh, you want to bear with me, or should I move on? You want to see it? Okay. <laughs> okay, let me see if I can actually pull up. Because some of these others I might have, I thought I, thought I linked these, but... So this is actually with a virtual uh, version of our robot, Leonardo. Now, Leonardo itself has kind of a fun story in that um, it's a collaboration with um, Stan Winston. I'm sure many of you know uh, Stan Winston as being legendary special effects designer in Hollywood. I met him around the time that the movie AI was being filmed. And uh, I was right around the time I was finishing my work with Kismet. And I told him, you know, Stan, we should, we should build Teddy. How many people saw AI? Did, did anybody say that? I told him, like, we, should build, we should build Teddy, but we should like, really build Teddy. And uh, for him, that was in many ways his dream. He talked about the ability to build a real character. So being in special effects, you know they're puppets as such. These are very sophisticated puppets. Humans jack into them, puppeteer them. They're only alive for the screen, but then they're just puppets. And the idea for him to actually create a robot uh, that was always this persistent character was really his dream. So it's kind of like the science goal of kind of R2-D2 and his dream of building a real character. They were the same, the same dream, so it was a, a really great uh, collaboration. So let me, let, me, let, me, let me pull up this facial imitation thing. Um, facial imitation, is this it? Okay, I think this is it. So, uh, so this is done with the virtual rendering uh, of the robot, but in later videos you'll actually see it playing on, on the physical robot. But again, the idea here is that it's actually the adult or the parent that does a lot of imitating initially of the learner's actions, which is Leonardo. And through this process, the learner starts to learn the correlations of eye movements mapping in a certain way to eye movements, mouth movements to mouth movements. So, uh, so. Leo plays the baby who starts off just babbling, and there's a lot of recorded knowledge of, you know, babies just do a lot of motor babbling, but the human starts to imitate that, and there's contingency that's being detected within the system. So the robot's picking up, if I move my eye and you move your eye, maybe those are related, and I'm going to start capture a, a training set to learn a model through, a, in this case, it was just a backpropagation neural network, of how your face moves in relation to mine. Now, the thing that's really fascinating about facial imitation is that it's cross-modal meaning that I can't see my own face when I move it. I can feel it. So in this case, the robot is starting to learn that representation, this intermodal representation, which is kind of like a mirror neuron in some ways, um, that is mapping the visual stimulus to the motor stimulus. And then when it sees you do an action, it tries to do a weighted blend uh, in order to try to match that expression. So in this case, the person now will open their mouth. The intermodal representation is kind of the neural, uh, motor neuron representation of that. And then the physical output here is what you would see. So you see novel expressions like a crocked brow being able to be imitated after the system is trained. It can be trained and uh, imitate new faces that it hasn't seen before. So the big story here then is through this process of imitation, children, in this case this robot, learn body mapping. So these sort of motor mappings of how my body relates to yours. You can do that for the face, of course. You can do that for the body as well. So body maps of how this part of my body maps to yours. Hello. Learning a mirror system, which is essentially that representation. 
And then the ability to mimic other actions is kind of the social structure of imitation. So you can start to build on this. You can build on this more. So social referencing is the next kind of learning skill um, that I want to talk about. Now, this you start to see kind of peaking a lot around, say, one year of age. And you might all be familiar with this if you have young children. If a child is encountering a novel stimulus, they don't know is this good or bad. I don't know. But if the mother acts very fearful, the child might take that emotional appraisal as its emotional appraisal and realize that her reaction can become my reaction. And now I'm going to base my subsequent behavior based on that. So in this classic sort of experiment, it's called the visual cliff. The glass goes all the way across the surface of this apparatus, so it's actually safe for the infant to walk across. But it looks... It looks like a visual cliff. So the child might come up to it and not be sure, is this safe from you or not? If the mother acts very encouraging, you want to see if the child will actually go ahead and walk across. Or if she acts foreboding, the child tends to not do that. So this is another really critical and powerful form of social learning, and that by using a trusted other's emotional reaction to a situation, I can use that to appraise the situation and then explore and interact accordingly. So we can try to bootstrap this more sophisticated, this other form of social learning uh, from facial imitation, given that we already have these body maps. We know how to basically say, if you do this facial expression, I can mimic it. I can produce it on my face. Now, it turns out that in psychology, we also have a lot of these body effect loops, meaning that even if I just put my face in an emotional expression, I'll actually start to induce that positive effect within myself. So you can put these effect loops within the, the system, the robotic system itself. So this is all about, I might be able to recognize the motor movement, but what's the underlying effective state? What's the appraisal that I should be mapping to it? So by leveraging this effect loop, the robot starts learning through association. I see this person's face, I mimic the posture, I induce this positive effect loop, and now I start to associate this effective state to that facial expression. So in some sense, when you smile, it's actually making the robot have more positive effect. So that's sort of this, again, kind of more empathetic sort of way of, of understanding or relating to someone. And then you can keep pushing that further to be able to say, if I can do that, now I can start taking those appraisals and applying them to other sorts of learning situations. So let me try to show this next video. Oh, boy. That sounds awful. What is that? Is that real? <laughs> is this going to play? No, this will play. If not, I, have, I know where this video is. Okay, let me, um, let me pull this up here. I know where this video is. So um, this is social referencing. So um, I'm just going to show you. So you can do this for both you know, positive and sort of negative um, effect. Um, so I'm going to do, well, maybe I'll do the full one. I'll do the full one. It's kind of fun to watch. Okay, so this is Leonardo now, the physical robot. Uh, learning by social referencing. So the point here, can you hear this? Leo, this is Big Bird. Um, these are novel stimulus. So Leo has never actually seen Big Bird Big before. Bird? And you can engage in this little dialogue just to confirm. Leo can see this object. He can point to it. He can now associate this label hey, Big Leo, Bird with look it. At Big Bird. Look at and Big now Bird, through Leo. this imitation, Maddie's going to be very positive towards hey, it. He's going to act excited. Now, you can cool? see there's a lot of other social skills that Leo's already doing, things like shared hey, attention. Leo, look at Big Bird. He's looking at Maddie's face. He's looking at where Maddie's great? looking. Liz understanding the reference of okay, that interaction, and, and now he's starting to ascribe that positive effect now hey, to this Leo, object. He's starting to pick up on it, and eventually he'll say, actually, if that's a good thing, then I want it. So he starts to show an ability to want to grab it, want to... Uh, 
to explore it. So that's like, hey, Leo, look at Matt this likes it, cool? maybe it's good, I should think it's good, and I want to play with it too. Uh, so so that's uh, the positive side. That's another gesture saying, if I want it, give it to me. Now, uh, are any of you Cookie Monster fans? Because some people get upset about this part of the demonstration. So I, I apologize. Leo, uh, this beforehand. is Cookie Monster. So same thing, novel stimulus. Monster? Just confirming that Leo can see it, knows where it is. He's going to point to it. Leo, Cookie and what, Monster what is very bad. What the robot's picking up on is, is not only the facial expressions, but the paucity of the voice. Leo. So like your dog doesn't know exactly what you're saying, <laughs> but he gets the emotional very, content. Very bad. So, oh yeah, Cookie Monster's bad. Watch out for that Cookie Monster. He's a scary monster. He wants to get your cookies. And he goes, oh, get that there, wait a minute. And then this last, next little bit oh, is to okay, show, Leo. Uh, you can perk him it's up okay again, now. kind of cheer him up, okay, maybe life's okay again. And this next part is to show a memory, the emotional memory. So now he sees Big Bird again, he goes, oh yeah, I remember that thing, that's the thing I want. That's the thing I want, give it to me, why aren't you giving it to me? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, oh yeah, that's that bad dude that, uh, yeah, I don't, yeah, take that thing away from me. So, so, social referencing, so, um... Okay, let's see. Moving along. So this was kind of, you know, again, this sort of empathetic, relational sort of interaction. Um, in an effective domain, expressive effective domain, you can keep pushing this now to the more cognitive states. So what about beliefs, um, knowledge? Uh, how can you infer that from what people are doing and how they're moving? So the bigger theory of this in psychology is called simulation theory. And the, again, the basic premise is that even in, you know, in people and other species, there's a belief that uh, a lot of the same structures in our brain that we use for generating our actions uh, are also used to basically try to map onto the person you're watching in order to infer what they're doing. So we essentially use ourselves as a simulator uh, for the other person. So if I can see what they're doing in this context, and I can infer maybe what, you know, what, what their goal might be. I can figure out, like, what's the underlying motivation of that, for instance. So it's about kind of reusing our structures for this purpose of trying to relate to and understand what others might be doing, not only physically in terms of their actions, but also the why, so the mental aspects. So we've been developing this architecture over time, um, over the last few years, to really exploit this simulation theoretic approach. So... You know, the architecture is just in this schematic. It's just representing these two bands where the yellow band is saying the robot has all of these behavior generation mechanisms that it already uses from modeling perceptions and beliefs and coming up with actions and goals and performing those actions. But you can do this blue band, which is essentially reusing the same structures, trying to do body mapping to body map the actions onto the other, switch the context, and make, trying to make inferences in terms of what might their beliefs be, what might their goals be if I see that situation. So um, the video that I'm going to show you here... Uh, uh, is a uh, short one uh, looking at a very classic psychological task that developmental psychologists often administer to children around three to four years of age. Um, and this is when children start to appreciate that others have beliefs that are different from their own. So before that, the, the, the psychological uh, sort of state is that the children just believe whatever they know, everyone knows. But when they get to be about three to four years of age, they start to appreciate that maybe what I know is actually different from what other people know. They might have different beliefs than me. So this is a classic Sally Ann false belief task. And the scenario is this is Sally and this is Ann. And Sally puts her ball in the basket and then she goes away. 
And then Tricky Ann actually moves that ball into the box. And the question is, when Sally comes back, where is she going to look? So if you do not have this sort of theory of mind ability, you're just going to assume that Sally knows what you know, which is that the ball is here. But if you do have the ability to reason about beliefs, you'll realize that because she didn't see that change happen, she'll still think that the ball is in the basket. And you can pretty reliably see children around three to four age starting to be able to make this sort of distinction. So um, is this link? Okay, so I'm going to have to pop out and show you this video separately. Um, let's see. Do I have it here? I have a more, I don't know, maybe I should just show the short one. I have a, like a really long one. Is this the one? So um, this is a classic Sally Ann task. So you have Leo before fur, so you can imagine this actually preceded the social referencing thing you saw. <laughs> Larry didn't have his fur coat yet. <laughs> and, and the scenario, so you're going to see this little dialogue. You can't really hear what Jesse's saying here, but he's going to ask Leo a series of questions like, Leo, can you fly in Big Bird? So you see Big Bird on the table. The robot already has object permanence abilities so that you can even hide these objects, and the robot will understand they're still there even though you can't see them. So he's like, you know, can you see Big Bird? Where do I think Big Bird is? And he says, well, you also think it's there because we can both see it. So then you hide these objects, and you can ask Leo again, Leo, can you find Big Bird? And he goes, it's still in the box because he has object permanence. And now Jesse is going to leave the room, and a different human comes in and, and does the, the trick. So uh, you come in, you kind of hide your face so that Leo can't tell you're actually there. You can see he's tracking it. So Leo can tell that Big Bird's actually moved to the other location. So Leo knows that you actually did this. He also knows that Jesse wasn't there. You know, So <laughs> he's like, hmm, that was interesting. So Jesse comes back and he goes, you know, so Leo, can you find where I think Big Bird is? And you know, Leo goes, you still think it's there. But you see he looked at the right location. It's like you can tell he actually knows where it really is. But then he says, well, Leo, can you find Big Bird? And he goes, well, I know it's actually here. So this is like a real-time kind of version of the false belief task. We've extended this work to look at more sophisticated collaborative scenarios where this sort of switch can happen and the robot actually is inferring your goals and understanding what you understand and don't know in order to really help you achieve that. So this can continue to be built upon and elaborated upon. Um, but I thought maybe to kind of wrap up a little bit, I wanted to show you one more video um, that's really about learning, because I think learning is another, another one about learning, but learning more on the task side that, that weaves in a lot more of the sort of um, intrinsic motivation and uh, reinforcement sort of learning. So the point of this demonstration, there's a lot of forms of learning that obviously people engage in, and you want robots to be able to engage in multiple forms of learning as well. So there's this puzzle box, and Leo is essentially... He's playing with this box, so he's on his own, and he's just exploring, and there's a lever, and there's a button, and you'll see there's kind of lights on these two boxes here, but essentially this is a control panel to operate these two boxes. And so as he's playing around with this instrument panel, control panel, he's learning how these behaviors map to being able to open or close these two kind of levers. So that's the task that he's learning. So the point is, you know, if a person comes in and wants to kind of help guide your, your exploration, then you should be able to take advantage of that. So Jesse, when he enters the room, now Leo's going to start actually paying attention to him. And if Jesse makes a, 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 a suggestion, Leo can actually try that out. So Jesse says, now try the slider. And Leo goes, okay. And then he goes, oh, look, this has revealed a blue shape. And now Jesse says, look, it's blue. 
And what the robot is learning is the kind of conditions or the, the sequence of actions he needs to do in order to reveal the blue or this yellow block. So then Jesse can actually just refer to it as, can you reveal the blue one? Can you reveal the yellow one? So he's learning these little task representations um, for how you can operate this box in order to reveal these, these hidden shapes. So this is kind of a classic reinforcement learning where the robot can take advantage of a person when they're there, can explore on its own, continue to refine those little models, those little task models of how you operate these boxes. So at this point, he's kind of figured it out. He's figured out the kind of sequence he has to do in order to intentionally now reveal one, the blue shape or, or the yellow shape. So he's learned that. Now he's going to start doing another task. So this is a task where the robot is going to try to make a shape out of these colored blocks on this sort of plasma tail. He can't actually touch them, so he's got this Yoda thing going on. <laughs> and, uh, and Jesse actually has a particular preference on how he would like the robot to be able to do that. And the way that Jesse's going to communicate that is basically by using kind of, you know, spatial scaffolding of the in- interaction to say, you know, if I'm going to pull a red block away, that means to the robot, you know, I prefer that you not use the red ones. I want you to use different colored blocks here. So Leo's reading your cues, your nonverbal cues, in a way to understand what your preferences are to build the shape in the way that you'd like it. So this is a sort of learning your preference sort of task. He keeps pulling away the red shapes. And now Leo's starting to realize, okay, yellow is okay. Maybe the green's okay or the blue's okay. And he's starting to build this figure. Now, the, the, the cool thing about this demonstration is Leo's going along, and then he realizes, wait, I need a shape, but it's not there. But I know that by operating this panel, I can get that shape. So he's actually doing a little bit of problem solving, applying what he just learned in one scenario into a new scenario in order to help him complete the figure. Um, and so he keeps going, and then he realizes, wait, there's this other shape that I need, but I know how to get it because I just learned how to do that. Um, and he reveals the next shape which is the yellow rectangle or whatever. And he pulls that out, and he uses it to complete the figure. So this is just a very nice example of a robot that's able to apply what it's learned in one situation to another situation in order to solve this sort of little problem-solving task. So you know, these are fun, fun with Leo examples. Um, and I, I, you know, I wanted just to give you a sense of, like, when you talk about robots today and their social abilities, there's communication, there's interaction, there's learning. We're exploring a lot of these sorts of questions within these sorts of systems. So to kind of wrap up, I think, you know, science fiction has inspired scientists, robotists, people to build robots that are inspired by science. But then actually what happens is that through the process of doing that, because you have to look to nature and science in order to figure out how to do this, you start to create this new way of doing science. It's essentially science by synthesis. If you can actually build this sort of working model or working theory and demonstrate that if I can give a kind of proof of concept in terms of this might be how it works in a child or in a person or in another animal, and I can show this robot can then now do it based on that theory, that's basically kind of giving another form of evidence in some sense to a particular theory, or if the theory doesn't work, then you know. You actually have a way of kind of debugging that theory, too, about why you think it might have fallen short. So these robots become these almost sort of scientific test bits under something not only about how you design robots to be compatible with people, but really understanding something about people themselves as well. Um, and in many ways, I think that's essentially what science fiction is doing too, right? I mean, you're writing science fiction to kind of probe these questions of what it means to be human. Um, so there's kind of this nice cycle, I think, between science fiction to robots and back to, like, what the purpose of science fiction is. And certainly these robots are, are inspiring other, other forms of science fiction. So, okay, possible futures with robots. So this is my, my chance to give you wild speculation. So, um, and I, I don't know. I mean, if you're in the field, this isn't actually that wild. It's not that radical. But um, if you look at a lot of the work being done, both commercially and in academia, I, I can see three major 
trends or threads of work on how robotics can become you know, part of your everyday life. So the first one I call is kind of the ubiquitous robot or the invisible robot. So in much the same way that computers are everywhere now. I mean, they're in the doorknobs, you know, in the hotels that allow you to get in. But we don't think of that doorknob as being a computer. You think of the doorknob as being a doorknob. So you're starting to see that already. So with things like the Roomba, when people talk about the Roomba, they still consider it to be a vacuum cleaner. It's just a more autonomous vacuum cleaner. I'm sure many of you heard about the DARPA Urban Challenge or, or Grand Challenge, so autonomous driving vehicles becoming a very hot area in, 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 in car companies as well. Um, people still see this as being their car, but it's intriguing when you think about what the relationship in the car and driver is going to be in the future. If the car, and it's already happening, cars are getting increasing amounts of autonomy, computation, sensing, um, what that relationship in the future is going to be between the car and driver. And I think in many ways, urban driving, if you have semi-autonomous cars or autonomous cars, that's a massive human-robot interaction problem um, and a really fascinating one. So that's one trend. The next trend, um, you might have saw the movie Avatar, uh, I think it's also happening. So this is an idea where the robot itself, all these social cues and skills, could become a physical avatar for a person to allow people to interact with each other but have a physical presence. So you're already starting to see commercial systems like this in-touch health system uh, of a telepresence robot that a remote doctor can jack into and visit patients and nurses and other doctors at many different hospitals by their computer. We have a project in our own lab called the Huggable that's actually looking at this as a sort of distance learning technology where perhaps the second language tutor could jack into this robot and engage in conversational practice with a very young child, like two or three years old, where you want them to be interacting with physical toys and in the world. So this eventually will look like an actual teddy bear. You're seeing the robotic underpinnings there. Another kind of instance of that is the sort of Keepon robot. I don't know if you've seen this on YouTube, but it, there was a sort of dancing algorithm that was developed for it. But the actual research agenda behind this is, is looking at this as a, a therapeutic intervention for children with autism, where the whole point is because this doesn't look human, that's its value. It's a simplified social stimulus. And with this little robot, children on the spectrum will engage in imitation, will make eye contact, will share attention, do things that they will not do with another person because the human face is so overwhelming. So the intriguing question is, how can this, how can this social stimulus help children practice these skills, and how can you bootstrap that up so that eventually they can get to the human-human uh, condition, but these become maybe a critical kind of stepping stone along the way. And then way out on the spectrum are these geminoid android sorts of projects. So this is Hiroshi Ishiguro. If you saw that Bruce Willis movie, Surrogate, he was actually at the very beginning of the movie <laughs> talking about this project. So Hiroshi, he's a character. Um, in Japan, they distinguish androids versus humanoids in that androids are trying to actually look human. So it's hair and face and skin and, and all of that. And uh, he actually has two appointments. He's got an appointment at Osaka University, which he's a full professor, and at ATR, which is a very high-tech lab in Japan. And so when he's visiting ATR, he actually jacks into his Gemini robot of himself at Osaka and holds group meetings and says he terrorizes his students that way. So uh, <laughs> there's kind of very intriguing social psychology that goes along with that, too. It's like if you, like, you know, poked your, the Geminoid, you know, do you feel like you've it violated personal space, even though it's a robot of, of Hiroshi. I mean, it's, there's kind of funny social psychology you can study with, with that sort of thing. And then the final one, of course, you know, the one I started off with and a lot of the stuff I talked about today was about the partner robot, where even in the world today, you have projects happening like at NASA, JSC, where they're building a very sophisticated humanoid called Robonaut that's really viewed ideally to be 
an astronaut's assistant that can deal with the same tools, the same artifacts as a suited-up astronaut to be able to perform collaborative repair tasks on a space shuttle. You're starting to see, on a simpler level, these sort of robots inspired by pet therapy. Um, so elders with dementia and so forth, there's a lot of health benefits to touch, but there's a lot of people, elderly people, at a point where they might not be appropriate for taking care of a pet on their own, but they can still get the health benefits by having something like, so this is kind of a harp seal-like like robot. And then this is a robot actually coming out of my lab, um, hopefully this fall. I have a student who did this work uh, on this robot called Autumn that actually is a weight, uh, it's a behavior change coach for, coach for weight maintenance. And the point of the research was to explore if you could build a robot with these social cues and skills that could build rapport, would you be more likely to maintain a diet and exercise program compared to, say, pen and paper log or just doing it with a PDA or a computer? And it turns out it actually mattered a lot that it was a robot because of the social rapport that could be built. So he's actually in the process of commercializing that. So who knows? Maybe in the fall you guys can, can buy a little uh, autumn robot. So um, I'm going to wrap it up there. I think that's my last slide. Oh, no, I have one more. Okay. So um, at the very beginning, we talked a little about the Center for Future Storytelling. And um, one of the things that I'm really intrigued about with robots is... Um, we talked a lot about animating the points of character. Can robots and these animated characters kind of like cross reality? So how can you kind of, um, I have to start this over again. How can you uh, blur the boundary between the story worlds that tend to happen mostly on the screen and your real world that's happening in your living room to allow, and I'm particularly interested in, in, in children right now, to allow children to really participate and co-create in that story. So you've got these virtual tofu-like robots here. You've got this little physical version of this little guy sitting here. And this is a very simple demonstration, but you know, you've got the ball coming out of the screen and into the world. And you can pop it back in the screen. So just this example of content moving from the virtual into the physical. And it's intriguing for me to think about, especially in the context of things like anime. What happens when anime can be these physical but also virtual kinds of characters? Um, and how that might affect our experience with characters and storytelling and so forth. You can imagine doing a little thing where maybe there's a little hutch that this robot could go into and then like emerge into the screen. So you can imagine this robot's perceived as being a character that can go between the physical and virtual worlds as well. But I'm really intrigued about thinking through that, uh, especially for new forms of storytelling, uh, particularly kids. I think there's a lot of excitement here with things like, you know, what would Dora the Explorer look like if you could have this sort of experience with it? Um, so that's a little taste of, of, of things to come that I'm thinking about. Okay, so I think that's that's it. Thank you. To come up. Do we need? Do we need uh, microphones or? I or we're just I don't know. How are we going to do the microphone situation? Yeah, what, what I'll do as people have questions, so I'll uh, okay, I'll offer you the mic. Okay, uh, should I take this one off? No, you should keep that keep on. Keep that one on. And I'll give Ian my mic after I uh, get a question. But actually, I want to first ask uh, Ian if you have a question for Cynthia or something you want to discuss to start off. Let's open it up. I said okay. let's open it up. Yeah. All right. Um, in that case, okay. Wayne. And it's good to say who you are. Sure. Uh, since this is being recorded for podcasts. Uh, I'm Wayne Marshall, Mellon Fellow in the Humanities, Foreign Languages and Literatures, and uh, 
lots of other affiliations. But uh, thank you to you both. Um, my question is actually for Ian. I'm very interested in some of the ideas of value that you're sketching out. Uh, and uh, I guess I'm curious to know, in particular, when you were doing the ethnographic work in the studios, them being commercial ventures, they're obviously interested in the kind of value that gets measured on sales charts. But I'm, I'm curious to know to what extent they appreciate these broader notions of value as part of what they do and part of how their product inevitably enters into people's lives. It's a good question. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting about animation is that I uh, began studying it because it had gone global. And, I, you know, I teach Japanese culture at MIT, and the students say, why are you studying Japanese culture? It's all anime. And so I was impressed by that kind of power of animation. But then as I started learning about the industry more, um, as a kind of naive starting out researcher, it was clear that animation actually doesn't make much money. Uh, it's really a, a lousy business model, and in fact, always has been. Uh, even Disney, uh, they didn't make money on their animation. It was really the live action and the theme parks and the merchandising is where there's money in the business. And, and Japan's in a particularly bad situation in that uh, because the characters come from manga, the animation studios don't get to cash in on the licensed merchandise that comes later in most cases, unless in the rare cases when they can make an original one. Uh, it works, but that's rare. So what it means is that, in fact, they're not very focused on value in terms of sales. I mean, it's, it's more a value in terms of can we keep this <coughs> shoestring project going, and you can see the kind of working conditions, and it's long hours, and, uh, and it's people who are committed to do, making it more than making money. Uh, and so, you know, I, I thought of it as kind of a, an example of media power, but in fact it was a, it's better as an example of sustainable media even when there's no money in it. Um, so, in fact, I think they're very accustomed to this idea that the value is not in the money, it's in something else. Um, and so one of the things that came out of the, doing the field work is, is sitting in these meetings, uh, especially they would go over the, the, the storyboards, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of pages of storyboards for uh, see a feature film, and it was interesting, sort of the palpable excitement that came out of the focus of attention. Um, and, and I was really struck by how uh, there was this social, let's work together on this and get pulled into it. And, uh, and, and there was this process by which if you're learning about the industry, you uh, learn by watching. I was often not the only person in the room who was ignorant of what was going on. There'd be a young voice actress or, or somebody else working on some other part of the business who would just sit there and watch what goes on. And I, and I too, and, and like them, I'm sure, felt like, oh, I wish I could participate. I wish they would ask me a question. I wish, and there was that, that way in which being in a group, having a focused attention, ends up being part of that process that pulls you in. And I don't think I would have recognized that without the field work. And it, it really struck me, and then it got me thinking other ways, that fan suburbs are a little like that. And maybe a lot of the things we do are like that. In fact, when we follow the money, we're missing a lot. Okay, good. I'm Hillary. I'm a, a master's student in CMS. Um, and my question is actually for you, Cynthia, because um, in CMS we're very interested in the social, the cultural, and you're talking about social robots as in robot to human, sort of one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. But what happens with 
you guys try anything with robot to robot? Or is that just a yeah, whole so, other can of worms? Or, you so, know, robots and human? Yeah, so uh, we, we do. Yeah, so... I mean, our focus has always been about the human to robot because in many ways that's kind of the new ground. It turns out that the the research field that preceded this, it's become called multi-agent systems, but the robot to robot sort of collaboration problem has been kind of a very established field for a number of years. Um, and a lot of that was inspired by swarm intelligence, ants, mosquitoes, and things like that, where each of the robot can be considered to be fairly simple, but somehow they can coordinate through simple communication to do these big kind of kind of tasks. So for me, the new ground to be broken was really in the human to robot because that really hadn't been been done yet. But as part of enlarging that 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 view, we do have a number of projects that are exploring the question: What if you're a person collaborating in a team of say three robots, and what needs to happen in that social dynamic? Because if the robots can just you know communicate through the internet or whatever, that leaves the person out of the loop and doesn't understand what the hell is going on. So what are the implications for how you have to? Even the robots in that situation have to communicate and interact in a way that the human understands what the hell is going on. You know, what's the state of the task? What are they thinking? Um, and again, really thinking about the whole, the, the communication, the nonverbal aspect of that. So we're starting to do more projects looking at multi-robots collaborating with a person or maybe teams of a human and a robot maybe competing against a team of another human and a robot and exploring these kinds of scenarios as well. Um, but that's all pretty new stuff, even, you know, in the entire field. Starting to look at those scenarios is is, is pretty new. It, it gets pretty complicated. Even things like, I don't know if you follow RoboCup soccer, that's like a pinnacle of, like, robot-robot teaming, where, I mean, it's amazing what these little robots can do out there on the soccer field. But when you had a human in the loop, a lot of things get really tricky because the humans, you can't, you can't just beam information to the human. <laughs> so... Clara uh, Fernandez from the Singapore MIT Gamut Game Lab, and I have a question for both of you. Um, we've seen these very cute robots, and I'm just fascinated by the touchy commas, the robots and girls on the shell uh, TV show. Uh, what is it about the cuteness of robots? Is it because they're childlike? Um, and you see it that is not in, in anime. You also see the typical robot with child voices. So can you, both of you, you know, theorize about why is this? Why is this fascination with children, childlike robots? Yeah. Well, I, I can answer that from the very intentional design standpoint. So even when I started um, the work with Kismet, part of it was that a lot of the inspiration was coming from children, but another part that we found and that, that we wanted to really leverage because we would read about it in the psychological literature are, is evidence of things like parentese, motionese, motherese, where if you're an adult interacting with, with a child with a young, you know, entity, even as a puppy, you tend to exaggerate your facial expressions, you tend to exaggerate your movements, you tend to simplify things, you structure things in a way, it turns out makes it a lot easier for the child to understand what it is you're doing and what you mean, and what we wanted to try to leverage was, if you could get that same intuitive dynamic going with the person, we didn't have to coach them, but they just started going, oh, kids, you know, it just makes it easier for the robot to even perceive the prosody in your voice, because it's, it's you, you see it in adult-to-adult communication, but it's not as strong. So in many ways, it simplified the perceptual interaction problem for the robot, the same way that it simplifies the perceptual interaction problem for the, for the child, the young child as well. So from an intentional design stance, I mean, that was a very like, explicit strategy that we, we employed. I think the other aspects of it is just, it's, it's appealing. People just, you know, they just like it. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I was struck uh, looking at Kismet saying, oh, 
it's got anime eyes, yeah. you know, and, and the big eyes. And, you know, it's been always a debate in, in uh, anime studies about why the big eyes. Is it Western? You know, and I, I tend to think it's more borrowed from uh, Tezuka, who did Astro Boy, and, and he borrowed it from Bambi and uh, Disney, and, and that it's, it has to do with this expressiveness, the baby-like with the, big, the head being out of size and the eyes being um, uh, extra big. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't know. The Tachikoma is a kind of interesting. If you know this, this character or these, this style of robot, it's more like a, uh, it's like a mini rideable tank, I suppose, but it has legs. And, uh, and the cuteness there, I think, comes out of more the voices, right, these really high-pitched, squeaky, girly voices, I would say, uh, and, and, but also sort of bouncing around like puppies, I, would, I think, is the other thing I think of when I, I think of the Tachikoma. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, do, I mean, I think I hadn't thought of it, but I, I think there is some parallels here that this, the desire to uh, convey emotion and sympathy works best with puppies and babies. And, and there's, you know, I, I'm, I'm the last person to be essentialist about this, but, but maybe, I don't know. <laughs> I would still say it's cultural, uh, but I, I think it, it is a, a, from a design point too, facing that challenge of that there's really nothing there. It's just drawings on a page. But you want to make somebody believe that you should care about that. And so I think babies and puppies and bunny rabbits, baby bunnies, are, uh, are a good way to do that. Yeah, there's also just, you know, when you build a physical system, I mean, physical form factor matters a lot. And if you're confronted with a seven-foot robot, even if it's, like, really cute, it's pretty scary, <laughs> you know, because you're like, that thing could really hurt me, you know. So when you make them diminutive and small, you're also trying to make them approachable to people and, and even just physically safe in a lot of ways. So there's there's a lot of just, not only the social, psychological side, but there's a lot of just engineering considerations that go into making that, that design decision from an aesthetic standpoint. I'm Jesse Thornburg. I'm in mechanical engineering with robotics and uh, comparative media. I have a question on the per, um, design perspective. Do you have any systematic plan to mimic later stages of development? Um, well, I guess once you have these early stages, um, such that the robot could respond to subtler, subtler cues and have those early stages already built in. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, if you look at just the progression of the robots that we've done over time, it is interesting how they tend to just mirror physical development of children and that kismet was just ahead. It was all just about the face-to-face. -face. And in the earliest interactions, they talk about it's all about face-to-face. -face. And then the children are starting to able, they're able to sit up, and now it's about objects and people. You know, so now it becomes about this. So Leonardo had arms. He couldn't walk. He was, like, bolted to the platform. But he could do this kind of stuff. And now the latest robot that I didn't show, uh, but Nick talked a little bit about, was this Nexi robot, which is a mobile dexterous social robot. So now we can move around in space and pick things up and, and do this. So that's allowing us to explore more sophisticated, complex forms of teaming, where now these robots aren't necessarily seen as being kind of little kids so much, but they're, you know, they're being seen more as, as partners or collaborators. So um, that is kind of, I mean... Not totally accidentally, but kind of interesting when you look at the actual robots themselves. I mean, they are kind of following this sort of physical development as well as these capabilities grow and evolve over time. Um, I have questions for both of you. But um, first, uh, for Ian, I was wondering 
have you looked into um, what kinds of fan production are valued more in different cultures or across, you know, different genders, different um, social groups of different sorts? And uh, I'm curious, like, what you may have found out uh, about that, because I, I know from personal observation that it's certainly different between um, different groups that I've observed online. And um, regarding the robots, I was wondering, how does one get involved in uh, in the production of these things? Because as someone who's interested in cultural production and um, and in robots, you know, I'm curious about how, you know, th there's kind of uh, certain people who are in certain positions have the money and the ability to make these things. So in a sense, that kind of determines what will end up getting made. Mm. Um, like in Japan, uh, there are certain people who are going to be making these robots, and that, and therefore they would be interested in making Adam because they've grown up with this, this idea. But in America, where we haven't grown up with that, maybe people who are looking at robots are interested in making Teddy because, you know, they watched AI. So I don't know, like, I wonder how... You know, I can make movies now, whereas a hundred years ago I couldn't. So I'm, I'm curious if you think that in the future, people might actually have more of an ability to um, get their hands on the, mm -hmm. themselves. Could you say a little bit about what you think about some of the differences, or what interests you about the different fan reactions? Well, one thing I always think about um, is the sort of internal—I uh, don't even know what it is—an argument or uh, discord between Japan and, um, I don't know if I can call it the West, but English-speaking online communities regarding uh, what you do with other people's art. And in Japan, people will make art and they'll put it on their webpage. This was like back in 1996 when the internet was still young and you could look up the word moon and find five pages about it. Um, but uh, it, people in, in English-speaking countries would just take these pictures off these other people's websites, not particularly caring, because this is just what you did. And you would post it on your website, you know, it was like your favorite character, and you showed how much you liked the character, and you were showing your appreciation for this artwork. And then the Japanese people who had drawn this would be like, you've stolen my picture, what are you doing? So, you know, and then there's other different kinds of debates regarding um, if you create something that's based on a work versus creating original work and different values that are placed on that. Yeah. So. Okay, uh, sure, thanks. And, and you should say who you are. Oh, I'm Nadia, uh, Web Development and Cultural Anthropology. Thanks, thanks, Nadia. Um, I mean, as you suggest, it's complicated, so I don't have a quick, easy answer. I mean, one of the things I would say is that uh, the, there's a huge fanzine, right, doujinshi world in Japan, which are fan-made comics based on characters. Um, and it's the largest uh, convention that's held in all of Japan every year. Uh, it draws about uh, uh, half a million people over three days with 30,000 different groups selling their fan-made comic books. Um, and so at one end, it's, it's majority women. Uh, doing this, and, and each day has slightly different themes, and so there's more boy days, more uh, woman days. Uh, <clears throat> so there's, on the one hand, so Japan, huge culture of doing this, 
would seem to suggest that Japan is open to this. But actually, the publishers hate this. Uh, they think it's terrible. They think it hurts the market. They're not happy about it. Um, and so, you know, there's, so who's Japan becomes the question for me. You know, the, some, the creators, these fanzine creators say, this is what we should do. Of course we should do it. Publishers tend to not like it. They, don't, they see it as hurting the market. Um, and so uh, it divides up in all sorts of different ways. Um, uh, there's also a uh, Wonderfest. It's a smaller convention, but it's where amateur toy makers will show up. And uh, the companies who own the characters say that we'll give you a one-day license. Uh, if you come to this convention, you can use whatever character you want without permission, uh, but after this day, it expires. And then they, they buy it. They buy up the good designs, and the rest of the people have to go home and, and either, you know, Get arrested for trying to sell it, or uh, or wait till their next chance. So you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, you're right, it, and and it's a big world that I haven't looked at very much, but I, I think it's a really important and interesting issue. Yeah, I mean, as far as um, people getting involved in the development of, of robots themselves, I mean, I think you're starting to see a lot more opportunities, uh, different kinds of opportunities where where that's being made possible. So you know, in in the research community, you're starting to see leveraging of sort of, you know, almost collective intelligence sorts of things. So, you know, in the vision community, for instance, the vision community has been leveraging massive data sets of Flickr images and images on YouTube that people have already labeled in order to train up recognition systems. So the fact that many, many people have already done this just because you can start using that huge corpus in order to train up these systems. You're starting to see some examples where if you start to play, you know, this is very kind of front, but if you're playing video games online, your behavior is actually getting captured and that's actually starting to train up AIs to be able to play like non-player game characters in video games. And we're starting to look at that at robots too. So you might go in and do a game, but it turns out you are actually contributing to some intelligence of some AI somewhere. So that's kind of like one theme that you're starting to see. The other one is just, you know, things like Lego Mindstorms and so forth. You're getting a lot more of these sort of accessible robot kits. So maybe you're not designing the robot that, you know, people are going to sell in the mass market, but you can certainly create your own. You can certainly share that. Um, so you're getting to see kind of more of the, I guess that would be more of a fan kind of community side of being able to create create your own critters and share them uh, for the fun of it. You know, and I don't really know so much on the commercial side. I mean, academia, I mean, it's the students who do this. So basically people come on by and they want to do Europe or, you know, I mean, it, that's how you get involved in academia. I think that in the case of commercial robotic systems, I mean, in order to do market research and kind of just get a sense of how people are responding to your projects, I think there's a lot of focus group testing and so forth going on. So there's a lot of iterative feedback, I think, that are coming into these systems as they design them. But I think the new, new thing is kind of this behavior capture, collective intelligence sort of thing where many, like, million, thousands of people could be involved in designing an AI just by essentially playing this game and, and, and capturing your, your behavior. So, so that's happening because of the Internet, yeah. Jeff Orkin's work at the lab is, is involved in this. I think we're probably... Well, let's keep going. Let's keep going. We'll go we'll to have... seven. We'll go to seven. There's a lot of hands okay. up. Yeah, let's go to seven. At the insistence of, of one of the participants. Um, hi, I'm Paula. I'm a freshman who's just curious. Um, so on the designs of these robots, um, a lot of them are humanoid, but lots of them are also furry creatures. Mm -hmm. Um, under what circumstances There's do you prefer... There's a lot of other robots I didn't show you that are neither. So. Well, um, under what circumstances would you use, like, human-looking things or, like, the Romba is just this little object? Mm -hmm. And, again, in anime, how is this reflected through... I mean, the Tachikomas are obviously not humanoid, but they're working with humans. And in shows like Chovitz or 
uh, Negima, they have robot classmates, uh, robot, I guess, friends or people they're dating. Mm -hmm. And I mean, how does the actual structure of the robot or look appeal to the function? Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in research, it's, it, it gets down to what is the question or set of questions you want to ask, and how does that guide the design of the actual robot? So if I want to try to understand something about eye contact in a robot to understand how social judgment might be formed, I better give that robot some eyes, you know? So a lot of this emerges from, from the purpose of the robot from the scientific standpoint of what I want to try to understand. We've done robotic flower gardens, you know, that's kind of like just off on a totally different tangent that's really... You know, just appreciating that. Again, I think there's this perception that you know things have to be looking like people or or, or animals, and, and if you don't, then they're not really anthropomorphic or whatever. It takes very little to make something anthropomorphic, and you know this from cartoons. I mean, in fact, again, the Roomba again is like is not anthropomorphic at all, but people ascribe these gates to it. So it actually doesn't take that much to start uh, getting this kind of social interaction with the device. So then it really does get down to, like, what is, what, are, what, what is the research question, you know, and how does that dictate what the design ought to be? If in the case of those little tofu fluffy robots at the end, that was really inspired by, you know, so much of our work, what we've done has been inspired by psychology and human movement and all that and how we express through that, but then there's cartoons, and they do all these other kinds of principles of animation, and they're super expressive, and there's really not much of a biological direct uh, correlate of that, but we totally understand what those emotions are. And what if we designed robots that expressed in that? What is just the, the, the kind of interesting sort of technical side of that? And then what might that enable in terms of, you know, are those robots, you know, that the tactability of that, you know, these are very lightweight, they're soft to touch. Just it's a different kind of affordance for that kind of robot than the kind of streamlined, cool, kind of, you know, slick humanoid sort of, sort of design. So the tofu robot's much more catering for us, for very young children. You know, so a lot of it also depends on who's the population or who's the target demographic that we're trying to design for as well. Yeah, in terms of the party made design, I, mean, I actually don't know. Uh, the, the, one of the tricks of doing fieldwork ethnography is you often don't get a lot of choice of what I got access to, and I didn't get much access to uh, mecha design. I do know that there are specialists in mecha design, and they're very particular about how things should look. But beyond that, I wasn't able to. It, it's something that still needs to be studied, let me put it that way. Uh, my name is Matthew Weiss. I'm uh, the designer for uh, Gambit, the Gam Whoa, excuse me, the Gambit Game Lab. And uh, this is a, sort of a question for both of you, although I suppose I'll direct it at Ian first. Uh, but I'd love to hear what both of you uh, have to say about it. Um, you talked about uh, Astro Boy originally and then sort of went into Gundam and sort of like the later anime. But what the big difference for me is that the later ones are not autonomous, right? They're piloted. And uh, I find that really interesting uh, in the sense that there's sort of like this, for me, from my perspective, there seems to be this ambiguity in anime of like, do the robots really have personalities? Do they really have feelings? Or are they just empty shells that the people inhabit that augments them? And there seems to be this weird metaphysics of like the robots maybe who you really are on the inside that you only become who you really are when you get in the robot. I mean, there's like all this kind of stuff uh, going on there. And I'm wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about that and how that maybe differentiates or connects with some of these other uh, ideas that have to do with the autonomous robots as well. Sure. I mean, it, 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 as, as you suggest, it's a big evolution, and there's a lot of threads that go off in a number of different directions. Certainly, I think one of the interesting things is the shift from Astro Boy, right, autonomous, personable, emotional, 
uh, and then Gundam, where it's just basically a tank with legs, you know, is the idea of, and, and uh, you know, explicitly that was their idea. It's just a weapon of war. It's not uh, anything beyond that. But then you get to Evangelion, uh, you get to Macross. It's kind of mysterious. What is this thing? You know, how is it related to other these other races? And then, uh, and then you get to Evangelion, where it seems like it's just a rideable thing. Then it turns out it has some life force and and so each of the uh, I think one of the things that's interesting is that uh, you're right they're not robots per se but they're the, this their interfaces with the human and then how the different series have decided to explore that really helps you understand the kind of the psychological issues the social issues uh, that they want to tackle um, I don't have a good way to generalize over the whole course of it but I think you've hit on exactly one of the interesting things about this genre uh, I was just wondering if there's any robot research in reality that's in that direction, right, of augmentation or not, oh, not, not autonomous stuff. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, in fact, I mean, a lot of early robotics is all about teleoperation, which is, I mean, basically that. So, you know, the, the more recent versions of that, uh, you're seeing, like, these like, Iron Man exoskeletons being created, mm. you know. Uh, I don't have, have, have seen the Da Vinci surgical system. It's essentially that, where now this robot allows the surgeon to make much more accurate, reduced hand tremors, so they can do much more delicate surgeries that are much less evasive. But the surgeon is actually in another room doing the operation. Is actually the robot that has the instruments of the patient. And there's actually a, a, a term um, called Nintendo Surgeons, because kids who grew up playing video games could do surgery where they didn't have to look here to do it. They could look on a screen and do it. And the older surgeons had a hard time changing them. So they call them the Tenzo surgeons. Hmm. Um, are, are the Japanese working on walking tanks? Like, like, <laughs> are, are, you say they, they want to make Astro I mean, there's right? certainly are they, are plenty... They okay, so, I mean, there are... There's a, there is a lot of... A certainly, government funding from DARPA, uh, maybe ONR as well, in the United States, on legged locomotion machines. And the reason why there's some statistic like... 80% of the Earth's surface can't be, uh, uh, can, you can't get to by wheels. You have to have legs. So there's a lot of research in building robots of six legs, two legs, four legs. I mean, there's a lot of leg and locomotion research going on. In Japan, because they kind of are, are really fascinated by the humanoid, there's probably the most bipedal research going on in Japan. But they're not as able to do rugged terrain locomotion as these multi-legged vehicles. And I mean... I don't know if you see like these John Deere forestry robots. I mean, they're like this bigger than this room. They're like ginormous, like walking forestry machines. You know, so some of the stuff. I mean, it's like even I'm like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so, and if you so. think robots are cute, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you another thing coming, right? Yeah. Big Dog is like the most disturbing video yeah, I've seen see Big Dog? No, <laughs> on the internet. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll get to that. Uh, we'll keep going, keep going. One we'll, more. We got five more. Yes. No, come on, we got five more minutes, right? <laughs> this is fun. We got, let's get some more people going. Right? People can uh, leave if they have to leave. We'll, we got five more minutes. <laughs> uh, hello, uh, my name is Steven, and uh, I'm an MBA candidate at the MIT Sloan School. And uh, I have a question for um, uh, Professor Brazil. Um, I'm kind of worried about, that, say, too much self consciousness of robots that that they might have eventually. So do you have any kind of limitation about the self-consciousness of robot, if any? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it is a fascinating question. And I think uh, in robotics even itself, we're starting to have special symposium on 
on ethics and, and robotics and thinking about robot morality and what would that look like. And you know, especially when you're talking about the military robots in particular, I mean, there are very prominent robotics researchers in the United States arguing that we should have robot soldiers because they would be more logical and more able to follow the Geneva Convention than human soldiers who are out in hell for so long and start acting in a very, you know, on a Geneva Convention-like manner, you know. So, and that, I can tell you, that's a very hard debated topic in, in, in the field of robotics, is that ethical or not? So, um, I can tell you, that, I mean, there's no, there's no answers, but there's a lot of dialogue that's starting to emerge around these questions. Not so much in terms of the consciousness of the machine, because I think people see this being, like, so far off. But these other more immediate things, you know, in terms of, should military robots have guns, and, and who, who who has the authority to pull that trigger? Should the robot be able to make that decision? You always have to have a human in the I mean, these are big questions. There, there are, in fact, automated turrets yeah. on the, the North Korean border that have a, a fully autonomous fire mode. Yeah. And on lots of ships. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> also, yeah. actually, right, auto, automatic fire systems there. But, but you, you know... You could branch out, though. Why not robot interrogators? Right, exactly. Okay, we're not going to end on that. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, I'm Amy. I just like robots. Um, It doesn't. It's just recording. Okay, so given the disparity between the Japanese view on autonomous robots and the end result of being, you know, supplemental to human existence and interactive, and the more American, I don't, I don't, I hesitate to say warlike and war oriented, but we definitely have a more of the practical side of autonomous robots. Do you feel that there's going, it's kind of a question for both. Do you feel that there'll be a clash between the two as like robotics gets more globalized or do you feel that there's kind of two separate entities in this, in this realm? Yeah, my, I guess my own sense is, is that the, uh, the clash, uh, such as it might be, is not so much a U.S.-Japan thing, but it's with sort of within the societies and maybe transnational. Yeah, I don't you know, think I guess, necessarily like the government. Yeah, I don't, because I'm not sure, you know, there's, there's plenty, I guess I can imagine, I know lots of research sort of on, on both sides in both places. So, uh, and, and yes, in fact, they, the military in Japan is working on Gundam-like walking tanks as well, um, you know that's what they do in uh, military contractors. So, uh, so you're, you're, it's an interesting point, but I, I, w- I think it's important for us to think more transnationally as where the coalitions and and conflicts will be. Um, and I even think new anime is really pointing that out too, uh, in ways that the the it's not so U.S. versus Japan or nation versus nation as problems within nations and then across nations. I, I mean, I think certainly within just the pure commercial sector, people are just looking for the killer app for robots. So it's like Roomba sells. You're seeing a lot of robot vacuum cleaners out there now, and everybody's making them. So I think, you know, as soon as a successful design gets out there, I don't think it's so much as us against them. It's like everybody's going to start making that because it's like there's a killer app. There's a killer app, you know. So I, I think in the commercial sector, it's just more of like what, what where's the business, you know, where's the business, yeah. So. Last question. One more question. All right. Yeah, so next. Do you want a chance? Do you have a question? No, no, no. Hey, uh, I'm Elliot, grad student, and uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, CMS and Gambit, no problem. <laughs> um, uh, Ian, on one of your slides, uh, I think it was the growth of the anime market over time. 
Um, and it looked like there was a uh, huge growth between 85 and 90, it was like quadrupled during that time. Um, I was wondering sort of what were the factors in that, and is there any connection to how that was also a time of huge growth in computing, considering how much robot anime there is? I mean, 85 was Windows and the Macintosh and, you know, the original Nintendo. It's a big thing at home where everyone started figuring that stuff out. So were those at all related? in that phase was was both an explosion of television anime and also more film stuff too. So 95 is Evangelion, you know, and just there was a, a big growth uh, in the kinds of stuff being made. Um, uh, no, I, and I don't think it was only Mecca, really. I, it was a whole range of stuff that started uh, exploding and really becoming more, uh, I guess, more mainstream, uh, you know, and, and it, it has to do with the Astro Boy and then the Gundam generation, Growing up, and that you have now, then you have from children to adults watching anime, um, and it really takes off in that era. So I think that was a lot of what explains it. And the other thing that's going on is um, uh, VHS, right? Uh, and that because you can sell the stuff, that then you're getting into uh, the, the porn, the more niche-oriented stuff can have an audience, uh, and so that also helps lead to an explosion where you don't need to either have a movie theater or uh, a TV station in order to get that stuff out. So that was a, that's a big deal. Pokemon is, is 96, is the game, and I think the, the TV show starts a year or two after that, um, if I have that right. It's around there anyway. So yeah, and Pokemon's a big part of this too. Um, Pokemon and related, I should say. <laughs> Sorry. All right, so there is a reception in 1483 Come to the reception, right? We can have more questions. And let us once again thank Cynthia and Ian. Good job.